Hi, and welcome to The Bipolar Feminist. I'm Nikita Ramkisun, and thank you for your patience during the month-long hiatus, as I made a life-changing decision to move to Sweden for the next two months. Some of you have helped me through this, and some made it possible. This week, we are talking about gender and race discrimination in sports. The usual triggers apply. I met Kasta Semenya when I was a young journalist and hadn't yet cut my teeth in the industry yet. I was a tad starstruck, yet she was kind and understanding that this was one of my first press conferences with an athlete of her caliber. She spoke of her family, her dreams, and her love for sport in general, while masterfully fielding questions about the controversy surrounding her gender and sex, something that has since all but excluded her from the dream she attained, despite all the odds stacked against her. Just two days after the rule was upheld that would prevent her from competing in her best event, Semenya cruised to victory over an elite field in the 800 meters in Doha in 2018. It was a fitting and wonderfully characteristic response to a ruling by the court arbitration for sport prohibiting her from racing against women in that event unless she reduced the natural levels of testosterone in her body. And it encapsulated how Semenya, a gay black woman from a South African township, has dealt with a decade of almost unimaginable adversity, with the kind of poise and stoicism few of us are capable or even compelled to muster. While there's no easy way to answer the broader debate about who belongs in women's sports, it's spectacularly unfair that Semenya has had to endure this toxic combination of racism, sexism, and homophobia. The court even admitted that its ruling discriminates against her, and nobody disagrees. In 2018, the IAAF issued new eligibility regulations for female classification, which apply only to women with particular variations in sex characteristics. And these regulations set eligibility criteria which require women athletes with variations in sex characteristics to reduce their blood testosterone to a specified level so as to maintain eligibility to compete in the female category. Various athletes from around the world were affected by these sex testing regulations, mostly from sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, including countries like India, Uganda, Kenya, Burundi. Reports of these and other athletes from the same regions undergoing investigations and or medically unnecessary and potentially harmful procedures are being published and investigated, as well as challenged by the women themselves. Semenya is one of many women, especially women of color, who have faced such discrimination. Legal mandates, social pressures for inclusion, and shifting demographic landscapes all might contribute to an increased focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in sports, and in some leagues, such as the Women's National Basketball Association, excel in this area, serving as a model for others. But despite the presence of exemplars, most professional sport remains mired in patterns of similarity and exclusion, where white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual men hold the key roles. These patterns are also evident in other sport contexts around the world. Thus, even though members of underrepresented, minoritized groups frequently represent the majority of players, Leadership roles are seemingly reserved for those who have historically held power. Masculine hegemony is the acceptance that men have rights to authority, and therefore, it's only natural that men are overrepresented in positions of leadership. In the realm of sport, this principle justifies the current statistics on sports leadership. In fact, masculine hegemony works to justify the underrepresentation of women in sports and sports leadership by suggesting that it is the natural state of sports. The results of hegemonic masculinity can be seen at the highest level of sports organizations. 
women hold less than 15% of the athletic director positions at an interscholastic level. Similar to our perceptions of the female athlete as inferior, the impression of the woman as a non-authoritative figure simply does not allow for women's success in authoritative positions. The lack of women in power can be seen across realms of Western society, not only in sports. The presence of women at highest levels of sports organizations is crucial for the advancements of women in sport. Women at elite levels within organizations are able to facilitate change, like the hiring of more women into the organization. In addition to limited access from the top, members of underrepresented groups are likely to encounter stereotypes, prejudice, and treatment discrimination in sports in general. The disparities are evident among athletes, administrators, coaches, officials, and fans. Even though group diversity is frequently associated with desired outcomes, such as organizational effectiveness and positive effective outcomes, sport is a place where people who differ from the typical majority face various biases, limiting their access to a full participation in sport. Numerous studies point to factors linked to lower participation rates of women and girls in both amateur and professional sports. These factors can both be external to sport, such as discriminatory social norms or obstacles to reconciling the burdens of care, work, and sport, to internal to sport, including the lack of programs to create a gender-sensitive and safe sporting environment, or to address harassment and other forms of gender-based violence in sport, including sexual exploitation and abuse. Broader socio-cultural norms, and more directly, discriminatory actions, such as prohibitions on certain attire worn by a woman, have hindered women and girls from participating in sports and public life. Women and girls who participate in sport, particularly those who do not conform to community-based gender norms related to the style of hair or dress, sexual orientation, or participation in particular sports, may be subjected to harassment and exclusion by their families and communities or their teams themselves. In general, the strictness of any sports dress code is dependent on its governing body, while some women athletes have a range of uniform options to choose from, others still find themselves battling antiquated dress codes, such as netball teams who are required to wear skirts because of the feminine energy that it gives to the sport, according to World Netball, previously known as the International Netball Federation. Recent studies in North America have revealed increased dropout rates and persistent barriers to the continued participation of women and girls in sports and other physical activities. These barriers include a lack of access to opportunities, safety and transportation issues, social stigma, expense, and lack of positive role models, as well as myths surrounding menstruation and sexuality. Migrant and refugee girls and women athletes face additional barriers, including racism and xenophobia. Anti-black language has also been used increasingly because more clubs employ foreign black players, such as fans mimicking monkey sounds at football matches when black Africans are playing. These forms of violence in the stands, such as dehumanizing racial language and religious obscenities. Thank you, Zero. Thank you, Zero. These forms of violence in the stands, such as dehumanizing racial and religious obscenities and labeling, including abusive sexual remarks against women, is a manifestation of the escalation of violence in our societies including supposedly passive forms of violence, such as racism and xenophobia, which often turn actively violent. Global awareness of and attention to sexual harassment and abuse in sports have recently intensified. Yet, as survivors' testimonies make clear, informed, comprehensive, effective, and rights-based responses to abuse, 
both preventative and remedial, restitution is not yet in place at any level. The Special Rapporteur on the Sale and Sexual Exploitation of Children, including child prostitution, child pornography, and other child sexual abuse material, has specifically called for attention to be paid to the sexual exploitation of children in sports, characterized as rife, pervasive, and widespread by the UN, which says it has gone unchecked. In 2016, former gymnast Rachel Denehollander was one of two women gymnasts that had filed sexual harassment complaints against Larry Nasser, the USA Gymnastics national team doctor. After her accusation, more than 265 women came forward and accused Nasser of sexually assaulting them. His accusers include former and current U.S. gymnastics national team members. Nassar had sexually abused athletes for at least 14 years of his career under the pretense of providing medical treatment. Many of his victims were minors. Considered the largest sexual abuse scandal in sports history, Nassar is serving terms for multiple offenses in federal prison, including charges of sexual assault and child pornography. In 2021, the likes of Simone Biles testified before the U.S. Senate on the FBI's failure to investigate earlier complaints against Nassar. Research on the role that race, socioeconomic status, and geopolitical location play in risk and access to remedy and prevention is also needed. The intersection between discrimination based on race and gender lead to even greater obstacles for specific groups of women and girls, including racial and ethnic minorities. Available data on women and girls' sports participation mostly focus on developed countries or elite athletes. The existing data does not show much about the intersection between gender and race discrimination in sport, global and local resource inequalities, and exclusionary community practices. However, some scholarship is beginning to address these issues, including sexual violence in these fields. Some studies indicate that contemporary gender and race-based discrimination in sports can be traced back to the late 19th century and early 20th century, when the structure of modern international sport emerged through the founding of sporting associations around the globe, their organizations into international systems. This period witnessed the organization of sport into a further racialized masculine ideal in contrast to racialized feminine ideals. When women in sports, even at the highest level, are reduced to their manly figure or the attire they are wearing, their true athletic ability and understanding will never be understood in greater society. The media's portrayal of tennis star Serena Williams perfectly exemplifies this issue. Williams is the greatest athlete in history. And yet, commentators, sports magazines, and the like will often comment on her manly figure or her Black Panther bodysuit rather than her tremendous play of the game. The perception of her body as manly alone signifies that only men can have muscular body types. We, as a Western society, do not recognize a muscular build as something that exists with all bodies. Therefore, a muscular woman is a masculine woman, and the dynamics of sports and all of its components remain masculine. As long as the inferior role of women in sports remains dominant in society, women will continue to be excluded, underrepresented, and discriminated against in men's sports, especially, and sports leadership as a whole. Other major gendered societal perception is hegemonic masculinity. And let me just say this, Serena Williams is the GOAT. I will take no questions on this. A special report on contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance has identified race as a gatekeeper for elite sport. 
while women's participation rates in the Olympics in some sports approach those of men, available data does not pass differences across race, ethnicity, and other characteristics within and across nations. Opportunities to participate in sports at local levels, which vary in large part based on access to resources, greatly influences women's participation in elite or professional sports. A study by the U.S. National Women's Law Center found a big split in sports opportunities between high schools that were heavily white, with the student body at least 90% white, or heavily non-white, or at least 90% non-white. The study found that heavily white schools had doubled the sports opportunities of heavily non-white ones, and for girls in heavily non-white schools, there were far fewer sports on teams than for girls in heavily white schools. Access is also uneven across different sports, some of which require costly facilities such as fencing. Women and girls from low-income households, therefore, face particular barriers in accessing the necessary facilities and equipment, as well as barriers arising from the uneven distribution of home and family obligations. These burdens fall disproportionately on women from racial and ethnic minority groups and migrant women. Discrimination against women and girls in sports extends to unequal pay and underrepresentation in leadership positions. The impact of the commercialization of sports on gender equality has begun to be examined, but still much more work is needed to understand the discriminatory effects of financial and marketing practices across race and gender in light of the changing nature of both athletes and audiences. For all the progress made through scholarships and programs aimed at equality, many who study gender equity in sports argue that it doesn't cut it. It doesn't benefit women across all races. White women, they point out, are the primary beneficiaries, even for black-aimed scholarships. And the law's framing of gender equality, without mentioning the intersections of gender and race income, ignores significant issues faced by many black women athletes, coaches, and administrators. Pay discrimination is rife in women's sports, and the main explanation put forward by the popular press for the gender pay gap is that women's sport is less popular than men's, <clears throat> media, get your shit together, and therefore generates less revenue. This is largely because women have historically been restricted from participating in sport, and therefore they are less publicized. It is a vicious fucking cycle. Worldwide, the most prominent gender pay gap exists in football. The average yearly salary of a male footballer who plays for a top-tier league club is in the two to three millions of British pounds, whereas the equivalent for a woman footballer playing in the Women's Super League is around 30,000 pounds. Even after the Lionesses won the Women's Euros in 2022, following which the number of women players registered with the FA rose by 12.5%, the number of women coaches for women's teams increased by 75%, and the average attendance at WSL matches increased by 227%. Women footballers still earned a fraction of that earned by their male counterparts, both in relation to prize sums from tournaments and annual salaries. The Lionesses received a cumulative sum of £1.3 million following their Women's Euros victory. However, had the men's English football team won the Euros in 2020, <coughs> they never will, they would have received a cumulative sum of £9.5 million. To further emphasize the point, Lioness Leah Williamson earned an annual salary of £200,000 in the season of 2021-22, whereas Harry Kane, <coughs> he must earns the sum in a week. While there is still great inequality across most sports, tennis is helping to pave the way for change. Women winners of international tournaments 
including all four Grand Slam tournaments, received the same prize money as their male counterparts. But this was a hard battle to win. The US Open was the first of the four major tournaments to award men and women equal prize money after tennis legend Billie Jean King threatened to boycott the tournament in 1973. Wimbledon and Roland Garros eventually followed suit when they awarded equal pay to male and female athletes in March 2007. The media plays a vital role in drawing attention to increasing support for the participation of women and girls in sport. Yet a study by UNESCO found that only 4% of sports media content is dedicated to women in sports, or women's sports in general. Media representations frequently propagate gender and racial stereotypes that denigrate ethnic and racial minority women in particular. Reporting often references women's physical appearance, age, and personal lives rather than their athletic abilities. Researchers have also documented implicit bias and stereotypes operating in the coverage of women athletes in the media, and some evidence shows bias has increased in the past decade. Coverage of women's participation in sports, considered to be more masculine, such as basketball, weightlifting, and boxing, is more likely to be accompanied by examples of interconnected racist and gendered commentary. And let's not get on to my favorite sport, Formula One. Are there any women? Nope. So let's move on to tennis, my second favorite sport. As high-profile black athlete, tennis player Naomi Osaka has taken a leading role protesting the death of George Floyd and other African Americans who die at the hands of police, wearing a mask with different names on each match day in the 2020 US Open. Elite athletes who speak out on social justice issues have often faced a backlash for their stance. Less so if they were white. Osaka, who is black, Asian, and a woman, may have contended with an even greater sense of vulnerability in light of Black Lives Matter and the increased violence against Asian Americans following COVID-19. Studies have shown that individuals suffer from various trauma when members of their groups are targeted and discriminated against. Adding to the complexity, is the fact that the norms in Osaka's native Japanese culture frown upon speaking out, which could exacerbate anxiety and vulnerability. Osaka's gender also may have contributed to the negative reaction following her refusal to do press conferences and her subsequent withdrawal. There may have been implicit expectations that women accommodate questioning no matter how inappropriate the questions or uncomfortable they may feel, while male athletes may be accommodated for remaining silent. It harks back to Simone Biles being criticized for pulling out of certain Olympics events due to mental health issues. There are so many more issues that can be discussed in terms of race and gender in sports, and none of them are warm and fuzzy, I can tell you that. On a personal note, one of the reasons I stopped both ballet and competitive swimming was because of racial discrimination that was not addressed, and I will never know if I could have been a national competitor. That depressing thought aside, there's more work to be done before we see any equality in sports, and we need to start making radical changes in order for these to happen. If the ownership of sports teams and associations are handed to the players, who all have an equal stake in how the sport runs, we would see better representation and less vicious competitiveness off the field for pay and status. Thank you for listening. As always, thank you to my patrons for making this podcast possible. Should you wish to support me, please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee. See you next week.